Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Before we start the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our season four sponsor, Nucleus Security. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that is produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, cloud, applications, and more. Next, we layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mondiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. Today, we're joined by Karen Scarfone. Karen, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to chat with you. I know for me personally, I've come across your name many times over the last several years as I dig into NIST documents, like all exciting, you know, people like to do apparently, uh, you know, so I'm excited to chat with you and hear about your background and dive into some of the topics I know you have a lot of expertise in. Uh, but for folks that don't know you or maybe haven't come across your name, can you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, sure. Um, so I've been uh, working in, in the IT domain for uh, over 30 years now. Um, I started out as a like a jack of all trades. I was the whole IT department for a small company back in the early 90s. Um, and that gave me a crash course into understanding how all the different pieces of things fit together in IT. And so since then, I've, I've always been a, pretty much a generalist. Um, got into security in the late 90s because of the Y2K scare, because um, I worked for a company that had money to to fix things for Y2K. Um, and then I started writing around the year 2000. And um, for about the past 20 years, I've been focused solely on cybersecurity writing. So I, I do a lot of writing for NIST. Um, I also do, um, I write training courses I write uh, a lot of articles, and, and I just started a blog. Um, I've worked on a lot of books. Um, so you, you, you have probably come across my name somewhere, um, but most people really don't know me or much about me. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before uh, the show when we were talking about some of the, the work that you've done. And I'm curious, especially from a, you know, your experience and your expertise, what you think uh, some of the emerging trends are around cybersecurity guidance and frameworks, because there's a lot of literature coming out. And uh, so I'm curious with, you know, SSDF and CSF and uh, the cybersecurity framework and the 853R5 now that we've got, um, I'm curious what you think some of those emerging trends are and, and where you think guidance is is really going. That's that's a really good question. Um, so I, I know I struggle and, and other people who do what I do um, also struggle to just get through the sheer volume of information that's out there now. 
Um, there are so many organizations and, and individuals who are putting cybersecurity content out there. And, and there's a lot of great stuff from, from a lot of places. Um, but how do people process that? You know, back uh, dating myself, but about 20 years ago, um, I wrote um, the uh, 800-61 on um, incident response handling for NIST. And at that time, it was about a 150-page document, and there wasn't anything else out there that really covered the fundamentals in, in that detail. Well, today, nobody would need a document like that. You know, it, there's there's so much information out there already that, you know, those sort of fundamentals aren't needed. And, and people don't have time with the, the increasing amount of information out there and just the breadth of technology and the hugeness of the security space today. You know, you you need quick information. You we, you know, I I hear people all the time, they they don't want us to educate them on a topic. They want us to tell them what to do. Um, and that's a big struggle for me because I like educating people. I like explaining to people, you know, I, I want to teach somebody how to fish. I don't want to, you know, give them fish. <laughs> you know, I want people to understand how to do it for themselves, but that's increasingly unrealistic. And it's just a, it's a tough balancing act. Yeah. I think that's a good point uh, is you kind of talk about that prescriptive versus descriptive nature of some of the guidance that we see where some may tell you exactly what to do and others are more focused on here's a certain outcome we're trying to achieve. How you get there may look different for everyone based on your environment, you know, those kind of mm -hmm. things. Uh, so I actually want to talk to you about a certain uh, publication that I know you've had some involvement in, uh, which is NIST uh, Secure Software Development Framework. Um, and, you know, that one has gotten a lot of attention lately because of the cybersecurity executive order and OMB memo, which we'll dive into. But, uh, you know, I know that existed already before the cybersecurity executive order, another version of it did, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, like, what was your experience like being involved in that new revision, uh, even the original, and then like, you know, being involved in something that had so much attention, you know, coming out of the cybersecurity executive order, uh, specifically citing, you know, NIST as being tasked to update that, that kind of thing. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been a journey. Um, all of these, these things like the SSDF probably are, uh, many of them are going on behind the scenes for longer than, than people would realize. Uh, I actually looked back in my archives. We started working on the SSDF uh, back in 2017. And uh, originally it was the SSDLC, uh, it, uh, life cycle. And it took a life cycle approach. Um, we had, the, the original structure was completely different. We had seven life cycle phases and we distributed that to some um, experts in the field around 2019. And the overwhelming feedback we got was great stuff in here. Don't organize it this way. Um, and people were very much against that sort of life cycle approach. So we reorganized the material. We, we rethought our approach. Again, same information, just, just packaged differently. Um, and, you know, that, that's one of the things that I love so much about getting to help NIST with, with documents like this is that we get all this great community feedback. You know, it's one thing to write an article or blog post or, or whatever and, you know, get it out there and know that people are reading it, but it's really another to get input during the process. You know, you have all these basically, you know, volunteer technical reviewers who are all 
looking at what you're doing and, and giving you their insights. And one of the big challenges, especially when I'm, I'm writing for NIST, is to take into account all the different viewpoints. You know, you, you were saying, you know, makes you, you, you're trying to make something that works for everybody, um, you know, organizations, large or small, regardless of sector, regardless of type. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, a real challenge all the time. And so yeah. we had all that in, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I can't help but laugh at that. Cause any of us who have worked in like any, you know, even moderately sized organization or team know how difficult it is to make everyone happy. So imagine writing a publication <laughs> for the entire industry that everyone, of course, is yeah, just happy. for everyone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> so, um, so we, um, we finalized the original SSDF uh, back in 2020. And we actually had started planning for version 1.1 a few months before the executive order came out. Um, so really, it wasn't a huge lift to get it to where it needed to be to comply with the executive order. There were some things that we needed to add. Um, but it, again, and again, we had tons and tons of community input. We presented at different workshops. We had you know public comment periods and and yeah, the SSDF didn't get a lot of attention before the EO, but definitely since the EO, it's it's uh, the profile's gone up quite a bit. Yeah, I was actually going to uh, ask a couple follow-on questions, if I may. Um, you sure. know, first off, I'm curious. Like, you know, we have heard a lot about integrating security throughout the software development lifecycle. You know, what were some of the concerns or, or critiques with keeping that lifecycle approach? I'm curious, like, what people's uh, beef with that was. Well, the the issue is that different people, different organizations use different life cycles. Um, so which life cycle do you pick? And, you know, my, my attitude was that, well, I mean, really, software development is all fundamentally the same. You may organize it into different phases or chunks, but ultimately, it's got the same parts. Um, but people felt that the life cycle approach was trying to dictate what phases organizations should use. And by moving to the practices and practice groups that we did, it, it took that perception away. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it, like depending on the life cycle approach they use, they can kind of adapt those practices as they see fit. Um, you know, another thing that jumped out to me I wanted to bring up is you talked about, you know, how you guys, how it came to came to be. And it sounds like uh, the people writing the executive order at least had some foresight to know that there were activities underway like SSDF at NIST, which is good. They didn't come out of the left field with a whole new you know, framework as often happens when there's a major incident, for example. Um, and I know SSDF does a lot of uh, reuse of existing you know, practices and frameworks from industry, which I thought was awesome rather than making something new. Um, you know, what led you guys down that approach of like, you know, leveraging what exists across the ecosystem versus you know, trying to create something brand new? So in the case of SSDF, you know, we, we weren't, we definitely were not trying to create something new. Um, we're not the world's experts on secure software development. We're not the ones that are out there doing this day after day. So, but what we noticed was that there were all these different resources out there on secure software development that weren't really linked to each other and that weren't speaking the same language and using the same terminology. So we created the SSDF with the goal of creating that common taxonomy or, or vocabulary that everybody could use so that we could all be talking about the same things. And so we, we worked with SafeCode and, and BSA, a, a lot of other um, organizations in that space 
to learn from what they had done and get their feedback on our approach. And, uh, and it ended up working out really, really well. Yeah, I think honestly, uh, folks I've spoken to across the industry, whether public or private sector, have been really excited and happy about SSDF so far. And I think it's because of that approach you guys take where you went and leveraged so much of what existed across different sources. That way, it kind of insulates you a little bit from some of the critique of, you know, why did you create this new thing? You went and used what existed already. Um, so one last question for me on that topic is, you know, uh, looking at the SSDF and what you guys created, um, you know, what do you think organizations overlook the most, you know, as you start to dig into the topic of secure software development, what are some of the things you think most organizations overlook the most or, you know, where should they start? You know, what are some of the key things that they, they should take a look at, you think? So I just, oh, I can't, I think it was Chris, so uh, why so Paul posted something a few days ago about the, the drop off in maintaining code over time. Um, and that, you know, he had actual metrics that were showing that, yeah, you know, after so many months of code being released, the, the rate of vulnerabilities goes way up. Um, so I, I, and I mean, I would have, I would have guessed that anyway, you'd guess that maybe, you know, people are more focused on what they're currently developing than on their previous products and things. But, um, yeah, I, I think maintenance is a lot of it. Other than that, you know, I, I think it varies a lot. I think there are a lot of, it, it's hard to be consistent. I'll just say that. I think it's hard to be consistent within an organization of any size. Yeah, it's actually, uh, I, I didn't think of it like you did about the maintenance, but that doesn't surprise me because I feel like as an industry, you know, we're often so focused on the next feature, next release, right? We, mm-hmm. We've kind of forgotten about what we've already done. Uh, but as they say, like software ages like milk. Uh, so those new vulnerabilities are emerging, you know, for the code you've written, you know, months or years ago. So it's a good call out. Yeah, I think uh, continuous monitoring, you know, continuous monitoring as it applies to software development, right? And your actual projects yeah. and applications. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because, I'm really curious about what are some of the like the most fun parts about what you get to do, whether it's writing documentation or working with working groups. Um, I could see that working with, you know, everything from SMBs to government to, you know, maybe local and state, whoever you're working with. I, I could imagine that being kind of fun, but I'm, I'm curious what what aspects of your job are are uh, really fun. No, I would I would say working with different people is is definitely the best part. Um, yeah, I, I do get to talk with people all over the world. Um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. It's kind of surreal sometimes. Um, you know, I, I get messages from, um, you know, sometimes it'll be somebody from um, another government, another country who has a question about something in one of my documents because they're, they're translating it or they're adopting it for their government use or, you know, I just... Well, kind of all over the place. So the, those things are, are really fun, um, kind of surreal fun. Um, but other than that, I just, I love writing. I, I love editing. If I could just sit and do that all day, you know, and which is pretty much what I do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a, a dream come true, I would say. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I feel very much the same way about writing. I think it's just, it's just a blast to be able to do it. Um, so I'm curious, uh, then on the sort of the other side of the spectrum, and you touched a little bit on what can be sort of challenging for writing for, you know, massive audiences, you know, across the industry and multiple industries, 
Um, so I'm curious, I guess, more from the language and terminology perspective, because I know that the types of terminology you use or the types of language that you sort of have to choose, um, especially for these larger documents, could be somewhat challenging. But I'm curious if 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 that's more challenging or if it's trying to create these, you know, big documents for um, really large audiences. Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I, I write, I write for several different audiences. I do quite a bit of um, magazine work where I, I write for uh, higher education or federal agencies only um, or businesses only. So I find honestly that most of that content ends up being pretty much the same. Um, you know, there's cases where there's something that's truly particular to a, a sector, but most everything that I would tell some, one company, I, I would tell another. Uh, I think I've just adopted that mindset from so many years of, of writing in that frame of mind that that's just kind of what I do now. So, yeah, I don't I don't find that difficult anymore. I think the to me, the, the most difficult thing, but but maybe the most fun thing, too, is just learning new things all the time. You know, an editor will contact me and ask me to write an article on some random topic that maybe I kind of know a little bit about. Um, and then I just get to dig in, spend some time reading all about it, learning all about it thinking about what I would want to say, what I could add to what other people have already said, and then coming up with that article. And I, I just, I mean, you get to learn every day. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, I think this is something that Chris and I talk about all the time that, that you know, writing something, whether it's a blog or a paper or a book, you have to do so much research and really investigate the topic. And so you sort of become an expert in all of these different topics. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. Getting to actually learn all of these different things at the same time is uh, yeah. one, of, one of the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I really resonate with what you said about, um, you know, they often say, I think there's a quote about like, if you want to understand something, you know, be able to teach it. For example, I think of writing kind of like that. Like if I, like you said, if I want to know about a topic, I'll try to write about it because I really need to go read a ton about it and understand it to be able to try to articulate it in writing. Um, so I want to ask you a question. You talked a little bit earlier about your incident response uh, uh, publication that you contributed to, for example. Uh, I will say you said, you know, we don't need that nowadays because there's so much information. I'll say the federal government and Department of Defense, they still cite that heavily. Uh, I can tell you as a mm -hmm. practitioner, uh, many people have to use that guidance still. Um, so I'm curious, like uh, as, as we look to other topics that are emerging, like software supply chain security, SBOMs and things like that, uh, do you feel like we could use more publications, more guidance on that topic? Because I feel like, as you know, I'm writing a book on the topic. And as I started to dig into it, there's no other books and there's not tons of uh, you know, you kind of have to piece together a lot of articles and different random white papers. And uh, there's not a lot of great materials out there on the topic, despite everyone talking about it now. Uh, yeah, I mean, supply chain obviously is just a, a huge, huge topic right now. Um, and there still seems to be a bit of a disconnect between folks in the security community who, who really see it as a, a major and increasing concern. And people outside the security community who maybe still think that, oh, that's like some far-fetched thing that's never really going to happen. Um, it, it seems to me that if we can change that perception, that all of a sudden there's going to be a lot more information out there, a lot more demand for information. Um, but yeah, I mean, NIST has, has um, its CSCRM guidance. 
Um, you know, and it's it's been very well received. Um, you know, there are other sources out there. Um, but yeah, do we need more good content on it? Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, I'll say just for me, like learning and writing about the topic, uh, I've heavily referenced that C Scrim guidance from NIST, along with the, like, their standalone website for software supply chain security and things like that. Some great materials. So definitely folks should check that out. Um, so my final question for you is, you know, for folks that maybe haven't done a lot of technical writing or, but they're interested in starting a blog, you know, writing a book, writing articles, whatever the case is, any recommendations on like, how do you kind of get going down that path of becoming a writer and, a, a, you know, an author, a publisher, those kind of things? Well, I get that question all the time. I still don't have an answer for it. <laughs> I mean, I I stumbled into it completely by accident. I never thought I'd be a writer. Um, I just, I, I had a kind of a set of circumstances. Everything just kind of fell the right way. And I was invited to work on a writing project back in 2000. And I found out that I was pretty good at it. Um, now I know that I really wasn't very good at all. I felt like I was really good then, but you know, I always learned that I don't know as much as I think I did. Um, but that's what got me sort of the writing bug, and and I've been doing that ever since. I mean, in, in terms of of getting started, I guess the, the most fundamental recommendation I give to people is, and it sounds obvious, but know what you want to say before you try to say it. Um, a, a lot of people that contact me are very hung up on grammar and spelling, and they're they're very concerned that if they they write that they're going to make a mistake. And you just you have to put all that aside. The, writing is not a career for perfectionists. Um, and I used to be a perfectionist, and I've gotten over that because you 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 can never make the document perfect. Um, so you know realize you the as long as you know what the messages are that you really want to communicate i think the writing just comes along you know writer's block and things like that are from when you don't know what to write you don't know what you want to say i think i think that's great advice to just sort of get started so just sort of give yourself a yeah. chance and 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 go for it um, so that sort of takes me before I take, uh, take you to our last question that we ask all of our guests, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your blog and Scarphone cybersecurity, because, um, I know you're, you're sort of getting this started and started writing in the blog. And I was curious, sort of what encouraged you to start the blog using this format and, um, and what you might be writing about in the future. So I've, I've wanted to have a blog for many years. Um, it never seemed like the right time, you know, oh, it'll next year will be better or next month will be better. And, and eventually you, you realize that there's never going to be a perfect time and you just got to do it. Um, so I, I ended up, um, it, it kind of happened by sort of backwards because I, I decided I to um, make some changes to my website. And I found this, this really great service that does uh, writing portfolios. And so when I moved to that, they also support blogging. And I was like, oh, this is great. I can have one site where everybody can go and see my blog posts and they can find links to all my publications. Um, so that, that's, that's been wonderful. Um, so I'm, I'm blogging um, sometimes about cybersecurity, probably most of the time about cybersecurity, but also blogging about writing. Uh, I'm very passionate about writing and clear communication. 
And, um, you know, I, I really want to put more information out there to help people who are struggling with writing. Um, I'm actually, I have kind of a pet project. I've been been floating for a few years. Uh, and the idea is basically to make a playbook so that if somebody is tasked with, you know, their, their boss says, hey, I need you to write a blog post. I need you to write an article. I need you to write documentation for this, this service that you, you know, whatever. How do you get started? You know, so not teaching somebody all the details of technical writing because that's not realistic. But somebody who's got to get something written and turned in today, what's that jumpstart? What are the five things that they need to do to to get something together that that meets the the mark? So. I think that's awesome because I know when I started in IT, that was one of the things I found out really quickly was that I couldn't just do the technical work. I had to also create the documentation that backed up all the work that I was doing. And so having a resource like that, I know would, would have been really beneficial for me at the time too. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Um, So that's going to take us to our last question for you. I'm very curious with your expertise and experience, both with writing and across numerous cybersecurity domains, uh, but what does cyber resiliency mean to you? Really, the the word that comes to mind to me is survivability, is that whether there are attacks going on, uh, any, any sort of adverse events, whatever's happening, that you're still able to get your mission done. Uh, that you're still able to, you know, to declare some victory at the end of the day, even if it's been a rough path to get there. Oh, that's perfect. I love that. I I love that survivability, right? Like that's, I love that. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and talking about all the work that, that you've done in the past, what you're, what you're working on now and what you're going to be doing in the future. I know I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with your blog and and seeing what you're up to. So thank you so much for joining us. That's going to take us out for this week and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Thank you.